Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea. Today, I'll be talking to John Thompson about his book, Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing, out with Polity Press this year. The digital revolution, as the name announces, is a technological revolution. The modern era has gone through very many technological changes or even revolutions, the steam engine, photography, the telegraph, electric light, radio, rocketry, nuclear power, and very much has been written about every one of these as well as about the subsequent technological advancements. Today, digital technologies attract the attention of researchers and commentators because advancements are happening real fast and because the future keeps getting nearer nearer than it's ever been. There's no shortage of people telling us the next best thing in technology. So why yet another book about the digital revolution? Because this book, Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing, is not a book about the technology per se. Book Wars is about what that technology means to people. And the book is also about what people make that technology mean. For example, just because the ebook has features A, B, and C to make it superior to the print book, that does not mean that these features will cause people to prefer the ebook to print or even to adopt the ebook. John Thompson helps readers of his book understand technology by helping readers understand people. To make clear just what John Thompson offers in his book, I would make this analogy. The consumer of economic models is not the consumer of the real world. And when it comes to predicting market trends or to making policy decisions, it's best we have a solid understanding of the real people in the economy rather than just the theoretical people floating somewhere above the economy. Book Wars gives you just that. Who was affected and how by the changes in book publishing and book reading? When were these people affected? Why? What did the people do in response? What followed? And how does all this and so much more lead to the present moment? And where might it lead from the present moment? John Thompson's methodology is sociological, with extensive fieldwork. Book Wars details the social space, or to be precise, the field of book publishing and book reading, a space that has truly been revolutionized over the past two decades, but not revolutionized and turned on its head I think that an editor from the 1980s or even from the 1950s would very much still recognize what is going on in publishing houses around the world. Sure, these editors from the past would have lots of questions, but they would hardly feel lost. And yet those lots of questions would be about pretty basic things like distribution chains, retail outlets, book production. The point here, and the point in Book Wars, is that nothing in social spaces changes all at once, evenly, radically, or in a short space of time. 
This is part of the reason why studies that focus merely on the technological side of change mistake new for different. There are new technologies in publishing, and these technologies are in some spaces really shaking things up. And yet neither publishing nor the book itself are being made essentially different, or not a lot different anyway. A study like John Thompson's is so important also because it contributes to our understanding of the present as well as our capacity to understand the future. The studies and commentaries which measure only the affordances of one or other technological change are good at getting the future wrong. A case in point, the doomsayers of print, the articles about the death of the book, the fear that publishing as we know it will come to an end, all of this sounds convincing in view of a new technological device like the iPad. Of course an iPad will appear to defeat a print book on every count. For one, it's not just a book. I mean, it can do book things, like present text to the eye for reading, but it can also play the text as audio file, link the text to an unpublished stock of photos, recommend further texts to the user based on reading habits over many, many years. A print book can also do stuff like be a doorstopper, and in a pinch a notepad, provided a real-life pen is handy. All this notwithstanding, the book is still with us, continuing to account for above three-quarters of total revenue at big trade publishers. And the researcher who takes in the whole social space understands why a superior technology sometimes replaces an inferior technology and sometimes exists next to that inferior technology for decades or even longer. John Thompson is just such a researcher. Okay, so Book Wars makes a fine study of digital technologies in the social space, but why study digital technologies and the book? Well, in my opening list of modern inventions, one glaring omission is, of course, the printing press. Printing revolutionized both publishing and reading, and that revolution revolutionized society. The modern era as an era coincides for good reason with the invention of print. Knowledge then circulated differently. Knowledge soon was constructed differently. Today, the printing press has been revolutionized. 500 years of one medium for text are literally and figuratively being digitized. And again, we find ourselves circulating knowledge differently and, to cite just one view, Nicholas Carr, we are thinking and reading and remembering differently. We need to understand just how digitized books are changing how we read and write and communicate. And John Thompson has written Book Wars to advance precisely this sort of understanding. John Thompson is Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Jesus College. His publications include The Media and Modernity, Books in the Digital Age, and Merchants of Culture. John's studies have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and he is a recipient of the European Amalfi Prize for Sociology and the Social Sciences. His theoretically grounded research is based on years and years of first-hand fieldwork. It is in John Thompson that such questions as changing structures in the publishing industry or the impact of the digital revolution on social life, will find good answers. Scholarly Communication is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, 
there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. John Thompson and Book Wars. John, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Communication. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I usually ask te- uh, my my guests uh, to start off with with a bit of background as to how they arrived at the book. Um, you put a lot of that background into the front of the book because it's so important to your uh, field work, and you've done extensive publishing in this area before. Could you still, though, situate us in what it was that your main motivation for this particular book was? Sure. Let me say, first of all, that your overarching account of my key concerns in this book uh, is absolutely right. You got it spot on. And uh, I think I would, I will end up saying quite a few of the things that you have already said, uh, because you have conveyed very clearly to the reader my primary concern and how my work differs from those who write in a very abstract armchair way about technological change. I take a very different view, as you have said, in that I, as a sociologist, am always trying to understand technological change in context. That is, how do technologies get used or not used in particular social contexts? Now, I came to this particular project uh, as a result of having spent a dozen years or so researching the transformation of the book publishing industry. So back in the late 1990s, I, as a sociologist of media and cultural institutions, became increasingly concerned with the fact that in the world of the social sciences, there was one media and cultural industry that had been very largely neglected by scholars. And that was, in fact, the oldest of the media industries, namely the book publishing industry. It was astonishing to me that uh, while scholars in the social sciences had spent a lot of time working on the newspaper industry and the film industry and the TV industry and many other media industries, and of course they were very intensely interested in the new emerging world of the internet, in all of this research, the industry which had been largely neglected by social scientists was the book publishing industry. There are, of course, historians of the book, excellent historians of the book, who have studied the changes of the book industry in the 17th and 18th centuries and so on and so forth. But no social scientist in the last few decades or the last couple of decades had really looked at how the modern book industry was changing. The one exception to that was a study that was done in the 1970s by three sociologists named Lewis Kozer, Charles Kudushin, and and, uh, Walter Powell, who did a study of the book industry in the United States called Books, the Culture and Commerce of Publishing. It was published in 1982. But since then, the industry had been completely neglected. And moreover, since that time, the industry had changed enormously. So I set out around 2000 to study the structure and transformation of the modern book publishing industry. And I spent a decade doing that. So uh, the first five years, I focused on the world of academic publishing, that is, the world of the university presses and of the 
college textbook publishers like Pearson and McGraw-Hill. And I published that study in a book called Books in the Digital Age. And then having finished this study of the transformation of academic publishing, I wanted to look at how the world of trade publishing had changed in the period roughly since the 1960s. So I set off on another research project that lasted five years, studying the structure and transformation of the world of Anglo-American trade publishing. And that was published in a book called Merchants of Culture that came out in 2010. Now, in the course of both of those projects, I, of course, spent a lot of time talking about the digital revolution because you couldn't understand what was happening in the world of book publishing without paying attention to the digital transformation. But that was not the primary concern of those earlier studies. Those earlier studies were concerned with a much bigger question of the overall structure and transformation of these different sectors of the book publishing world. And the digital transformation was part of that story. But I was very conscious of the fact that the digital transformation in the publishing industry was a much bigger question than I had dealt with in either of those earlier studies. And so around 2012, I decided that I would follow up my study of Anglo-American trade publishing in Merchants of Culture by conducting a a separate study, as it were, a follow-on study of the digital transformation in the world of Anglo-American trade publishing that would take me into areas that I had simply not been able to look at in my earlier work. And so that began around 2012, and, and I spent six or seven years researching this topic. It's part of the nature of my approach that this kind of research can't be done quickly because to do it properly, as you rightly said in your introductory comments, you have to immerse yourself in these social worlds. You have to go into these worlds as a sociologist or anthropologist of modern culture and talk with the people who were actively involved in in this case, producing books or creating new forms of content that might be competing with the older forms of book publishing. And so I did that, and I spent six or seven years uh, immersed in the world of digital publishing and the world of traditional book publishing insofar as it was embracing new digital technologies. And I carried out many, many, many interviews, 180 to 200 interviews. Um, and I then worked on that material to turn it into the book called Book Wars. So that is a brief account of how I got into this particular project. Very good. And the, the field work shows so clearly through every page of the book, uh, we get really close, personal, in-depth looks at you know, a company forming, a company collapsing, uh, a company expanding, and people with ideas and how they're bringing them into uh, publishing through digital technologies. I wonder, though, if you could 
give us your insider's insider look at this. And from this last set of uh, interviews from 2012 on, maybe if you could just give us one of those points or one of those moments during an interview where you found that you were seeing now something that you hadn't been seeing from the outside. Yes. Okay. I, I, there were so many moments of that kind. Um, but let me, so before I immerse myself in some of the detail, let me just preface it with a broader comment. So to pick up on what you have just said. Um, so what I tried to do here was to understand the social life of technological change. Technologies don't just have an effect in the social world. They are not some kind of uh, independent, autonomous um, mechanism that changes social life. What happens is that individuals seize opportunities that are made available by technological developments and seek to develop new initiatives of one kind or another to invent new processes, invent new um, uh, forms of uh, uh, service or content or product that could be launched into a marketplace and picked up and used by others or not, as the case may be. So you have to immerse yourself in the complex process of technological creativity. Uh, and that means you have to follow what people do and how they do it, what they think they are doing, what kind of strategies they have for developing new products and services. And then you need to follow them over time because it's one thing to have a good idea. It's quite another to make it work in practice. Making it work and making it expand and develop and sustain itself over time requires a whole series of, of social and financial developments that you as a innovator have to bring on board. So to take a simple example, many people, many, many, many people saw the development of digital technologies as an opportunity to create uh, new ways of packaging and delivering book content. So this is just the most basic way of thinking about it. Now, a book when you look at a book from a point of view of the digital revolution, what you see are, a, are sequences of knots and ones because the symbolic content of a book is words and images and words and images can be digitized and therefore turned into a form of digital content. And if you can then take that digital content and simply deliver it to consumers without the traditional physical apparatus of the book within which that content had been previously embedded, then you open up a whole new world of possibilities, both in terms of delivering traditional book content to consumers in a digital form, but also in terms of completely reinventing what a book is. Because when you think about it, the books that we are so familiar with in our world today, an object, a physical object of 200, 250, 300 pages, 
is an object whose limits have been defined largely by something that is only incidentally related to the content itself. That is, namely, its limits are defined by the physical format of the print-on-paper book. So if it's 300 pages, it's because 300 pages is a convenient form for producing a printed book. But if you remove the necessity of embedding that content in a physical substratum of the print-on-paper book, then a book could be very short. It could be 20 or 30 pages. Or it could be very long. It could be several thousand pages. Since you don't have to print the pages, it doesn't matter. Or it doesn't even have to be just a print, a, a series of words. It could be video images. It could be all sorts of sound and video and lots of other things integrated with the, with the, with the word, with the sentence, and so on and so forth. In other words, you could reinvent the very form of the book. Now, there were no shortage of people who saw that opportunity in the late 90s and early 2000s. And they saw this is a, is a completely transformative moment in the long 500-year history of the book, where the cons traditional constraints of the book that had been imposed largely by the fact that the symbolic content of the book had been embedded in the material substratum of the print-on-paper book, that is, print printed pages bound together, that those constraints would suddenly be eliminated and books could be reinvented in countless new ways. So this opened up a rich field of opportunity. And there were no shortages, as I say, of people thinking about different ways of doing this. And so one of the chapters in Book Wars is focused on these many, many different experiments, ways of reinventing the form of the book. And one that I, I spent a lot of time on, and I was found particularly interesting, was a tremendously creative and imaginative group of people in London um, who gathered in an organization which they called Touch Press, founded by a couple of people uh, uh, in, who, were, who came together for incidental reasons and came up with this idea of basically creating a new form of the book using the, the, essentially the iPad and developing the book as an app for the iPad. And so this was a very creative uh, process. And I worked very in, in great detail with them over a number of years interviewed them many times, followed them over the years from, you know, from perhaps around 2012, 2013 through for five years and interviewed them over this time period to see what their trajectory was over time. And there was no doubt that in the early days, this looked like it was going to be a great success because they had, uh, they brought out one app, which they called the, the, the Elements, um, which was a tremendously creative um uh, app presenting the different basic elements and giving 
users the opportunity to experience these elements in ways that has simply not been possible in the traditional print-on-paper book. And this was a this app was a tremendous success. And so it looked like they were going to be on a trajectory of you know real real success within this new series of opportunities that were opening up to recreate the form of the book. This was a book like none you had ever seen before. And they went from one project to another. Um, in many ways, some of them were very, very creative, uh, and they produced some absolutely outstanding work. And yet, it also became clear as I followed them over time that this imaginative, creative way of reinventing the book as an app was not going to succeed in the end. And it was not going to succeed for a variety of very complicated reasons to do with the ways in which they tried to monetize this material and the ways in which the world of the app was itself changing, where it was just be- where apps were becoming cheaper and cheaper and it was simply not possible to produce these high quality apps as they were produced, as Touch Press was producing, and make them work financially. So at the end, you know, in, in the course of a five or six year time period, it became clear that the whole idea of reinventing the book in this kind of creative fashion in the new digital medium of the app was not going to succeed. So there's just one of countless examples I could give you of how the process of immersing yourself in the reality shows that what might seem like a very attractive idea in principle, as we say on paper, um, was not going to work out in practice because the complexity of the social and financial conditions of realization were, were such was such that it wasn't going to be financially feasible for them to sustain this project. So that, again, I could give you many other examples, but that is a good one to illustrate the richness of this approach. Yes, the, the touch press uh, experiments and, and, and apps were in, in the book, certainly one of those uh, sections that's, that immersed the reader as well, which is one of the things that the book does so well, because you have so many details at hand, having been there and spoken with them, you have so much to choose from. And, and you do a good job of picking out the right ones, because it certainly conveys that sense of there's something going on here. And I, and I would like to ask you also once more, though, about your methodology, it, it mm-hmm. seems that this immersion technique, this, this, you know, field work that you're doing, seems to be an attempt to figure out what the other individual's normal is. I mean, we all just seem to tend to get used to our social environments and our normal social activities so quickly that for somebody stepping in from the outside, what they that outsider sees as strange, different, new is, of course, to the person inside, you know, every day. And I would say that Touch Press is probably a wonderful example. I mean, by probably year two or three of their project, you, ha- you also have that wonderful chance of being able to follow them over years, that their revolution of the book's form, as you call it, so what a book actually is, was becoming something that you know they were already um, tweaking, changing, and revolutionizing again. And for somebody on the outside, I mean, if they had to name it, they might not even be able to say that their products, their apps were books. And yet they still saw it that way at TouchPress, I would say. So I guess my, my, my question is, is, is 
that also one of those aims of this field work to really get inside of the normal of whoever it is that you're interviewing. That's that's absolutely right. And I, I think that that's the big challenge for a researcher to do this because, first of all, you have to be able to persuade the people who are developing these initiatives, who are immersed in these new processes, to give you the time you need in order to see the world from their point of view. This is not an... It is not a simple, um, brief process because, as you say, they have worked. They are immersed in that world. They are creating that world, and you need to persuade them to give you quite a lot of time to bring you into the into their world and enable you to see what they are doing from their point of view. Uh, and so, that's absolutely what I set out to do. Um, not just once or twice, but dozens of times because the other thing that strikes you as you begin to work on this topic is the sheer enormous complexity of it um, we might have you know the, the the traditional world of book publishing was itself is itself a very complicated world much more complicated than outsiders imagine it to be it is complicated but it is nothing compared to the complexity of these new worlds that are being opened up by the digital transformation. Now we see just dozens of different worlds, each enormously complex in their own way. Many organizations doing new and creative things, which they are pioneering, they are creating new um, new vistas, new opportunities, new ways of thinking. And you have to immerse yourself in many of these different worlds and try to see, as I say, see the world from their point of view. So I gave the example of Touch Press, but they're just one of dozens of new undertakings seeking to create a different form of the book. Um, so I deal with several others at the same time. But then there are many other spaces here. There's the world of self-publishing, um, which is itself immensely complex. And again, you need to immerse yourself in that world and see the world from the point of view of the players within it in order to understand the contours of that new world. So I completely agree with you. That's part and parcel of what's at stake here. At the same time, you as the researcher, or me as the researcher in this particular case, also have to maintain some distance from those worlds. That is, you do have to immerse yourself in order to understand how they see the world. But at the same time, you have to do this time and time again. So you have to maintain a position outside of any one of those worlds in order to be able to provide the overview of this transforming space that I call the field of the book. And so you have to be able to map this space and all its complexity in order to enable the reader not simply to immerse themselves in one world, but to immerse themselves in dozens of worlds without getting completely lost. Well, that certainly succeeds. I can wholeheartedly uh, tell readers, listeners, that um, the book takes you on a journey. I mean, as you mentioned here, self-publishing is one entire other venue, experiments as we were just talking about. We haven't even mentioned Amazon. I'm saving Amazon for <laughs> just slightly later. Uh, 
one last thing about TouchPress, though, because I see this as an opportunity to maybe expand into a slightly different direction as well. It's the one of the the examples, at least that the book provides. Perhaps you can say that there was other things happening going on out there that seemed to be most successful in in really changing the form of the book. And it made me think while I was reading, and I know this is about trade publishing, but it made me think in uh, the area of academic publishing of uh, scientific journals and what has happened there over the past 10 or 15 years. Now, uh, just briefly to refer also for listeners uh, to what it is that I'm talking about, um, a journal maybe in the 1990s would have probably typically been in print, would have been something you picked up at the library, and you would have had a limited number of figures to understand what the research article was about. I'm sure many of you know, but a journal nowadays, go to PLOS One, is loaded with information. You've still got your article in a format that you would more or less recognize, and you, you've got supplementary material, you've got links, you can go directly from the references into the uh, articles that are being referenced. There's videos there, there's everything. And it just struck me that what Touch Press was trying to do was something, I would say, akin to that. And it just didn't seem to succeed. It would almost seem as if the general reader is more conventional, let's say, than the scientist. There, yeah, that's a very interesting comparison. There are, there are many um, things to say in relation to that. Uh, first of all, you have to you have to see that the the digital transformation in relation to scientific periodicals or journals uh, took place in the nineteen nineties and early two thousands in a completely different field. To use the, the terminology that I use. The world of, of scientific journal publishers is a completely different world, and it works in a completely different way from the world of trade publishing. There's just almost no comparison between them, and the financial models are completely different. So the world of scientific journal publishing is basically uh, funded by university libraries. That is, it's an institutional market. And the university libraries are the customers. They are buying the scientific journals. And so the, the, you're selling not to individual consumers, but to institutions. And moreover, the very nature of the scientific journal was that it was an essentially almost arbitrary collection of short pieces. Uh, you know, the reader... The reader, the, the the academic or the scholar who reads material, reads scientific journal articles, doesn't read a journal from cover to cover. You just read one article, and it's usually very short, twenty pages or something of that kind. So your ability to read that on screen or even to print it out is um, relatively straightforward. It's not like reading a three hundred page book. So it's a very different kind of experience. So. Those are just two very, very basic and obvious differences between scientific journals on the one hand and trade books on the other. So the digital transformation in the world of scientific journals and scientific journal publishing happened essentially in the 1990s, and it was decisive. It happened very quickly, and it was a almost a complete transformation um, because all scientific journals were basically online, and 
they became a, a, a basically a, a digital product. Uh, yes, they were also in some cases also printed as backup copies or supplementary copies, but essentially the the whole world of scientific journal publishing made a transition to online availability. So that that was pretty decisive process. But in the case of trade publishing and in the world of touch press, it's totally different because here you are dealing, just to take the two points that I pointed to a minute ago, first of all, you're not selling these apps to institutions. You don't have an institutional customer who's going to pay thousands of dollars for the annual subscription to the American Journal of Economics or whatever it might be. You have you have to you have to sell these apps to individual consumers who are very price sensitive um, because they are being offered apps for a dollar or five dollars or something. So why would they pay fifteen dollars for your premium app? So price sensitivity becomes a really important consideration in that space. Um, and moreover, um, the the, the, the many readers are still going to want to value a printed book in a way that they don't care about whether the journal article is printed because the journal article is short, 15, 20 pages. But a printed book is long. It's maybe 300 pages. And the experience of reading 10 pages is very different from the experience of reading 300 pages on a screen. And so there are two at least those two things, which make these worlds very, very different. And TouchPress found itself operating in a world of consumers, not institutions. They were trying to sell their apps to individual consumers who were becoming increasingly um, price sensitive because the price of apps was going down and down and down. Uh, and they were you know, expecting consumers to be able to spend you know, to find their apps attractive because they would spend a lot of time with them and so on and so forth. And so this was an environment in which the idea of selling a premium app at a high price that readers would spend a lot of time with was looking less and less attractive over time. And their sales simply weren't strong enough to sustain the high costs involved in creating complex apps of that kind. I wonder if it would be possible, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, because we've got in the sciences, if you just very lucidly explained, you know, a form, a, a new form of the journal, I would almost say, and uh, we have this potential in the digital book, which because of the market situation uh, is just not being necessarily exploited in a way, at least artistically or creatively, as it might be. TouchPress is a perfect example for that. I wonder if it wouldn't be possible that apps or even journals at arts schools wouldn't be then subsidized through um, tuition fees or through the library um, subscriptions, as you were saying, so that such experimentation could take place. Well, to some extent, that's happening already because uh, if we leave, if we leave touch press to one side here and we think instead of scholarly monograph publishing, this was not the focus of Book Wars, but if we just for a moment um, focus on this now, um, what you see in the world of scholarly monograph publishing, that is the kind of publishing that university presses do, like Oxford University Press or Cambridge University Press or 
Harvard University Press or California, etc., is that they are they are moving towards models and have for some time been moving towards models in which the scholarly monograph is essentially marked up where in such a way that the chapters are essentially like journal articles and the scholarly monograph is made available in an online subscription service or space of some kind. Um, so that kind of model um, does already exist. The expectation is that university libraries will buy into that subscription model and uh, allow their users access to scholarly monographs in a digital form without having to borrow the physical book from the library. So that model does exist already in books, very much in a sense modeled on the scholarly journal um, that and the transformation of the world of scholarly journals that occurred in the 1990s. So that, that does exist, that process does exist, and um, I'm sure that will continue. But it's the world of trade books is a rather different world. It's a different field, as I call it, and it works in different ways because the, 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 main, um, the main customers are not institutions like university libraries and so on. The main customers are individual consumers or readers. And that's what we should certainly get back to. I'd like to bring up Amazon. Um, Amazon is never irrelevant, I suppose, especially in the area of trade. So we'll just make that jump. Um, you talk uh, about the, the retail revolution. And as we know, Amazon is uh, at least began as a retailer, may also be expanding some of its work. And you could also fill us in on that as to how you would perhaps define Amazon. But could you sort of situate also historically historically and socially, the retail revolution, as you call it, that had begun in book publishing from about the 1960s up until today, and then where Amazon sort of places itself in that. Yes. So it's a, it's a transformation that went through two main phases. The first phase of this retail transformation of the book business occurred in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s with the rise of the retail chains uh, and, 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 and crucially, the, the large book chains, specialized book chains like Barnes & Noble Borders in North America and uh, Waterstones uh, and other players here in the UK. Uh, and they they basically changed what had been the model of book retailing previously. Previously, you'd had books being sold in many different small bookstores and, and other non-specialized retail outlets like um, department stores and um, chemist shops uh, and so on and so forth. But with the rise of the book retail chains, you have many of these smaller bookstores being forced out of business and the large retail book retail chains like Barnes and Noble and Borders entering into a kind of battle between themselves for dominance in North America. And you had a similar struggle in, in the UK with one um, party eventually emerging as victorious. In the case of North America, it was, of course, Barnes & Noble because Borders went out of business. And in 
in the UK, Waterstones emerged as victorious in this struggle. But while these these battles were taking place, and in the 1980s and 90s, all trade publishers had to deal with these big, powerful, specialized bookselling chains like Barnes & Noble and Waterstones. Um, but while this struggle was taking place quietly, there was a new player emerging. Uh, Amazon was essentially a product of the digital revolution. It was began in 1996, and it was, it was a, you know, it was a small tech startup in a garage in Seattle, started by Jeff Bezos. And uh, he started with books because he saw that books were a great commodity um, to deal with as an internet retailer, because all copies of the same book were the same everywhere. So one copy of Book Wars was the same as another copy of Book Wars. And, uh, and moreover, um, you didn't actually have to hold on to all that stock because you could simply um, you could simply source it from wholesalers. So you could start in a garage and you simply get people to order the book and then you would source it from the wholesaler and send it on to the consumer. You could, therefore, as a online retailer, potentially offer consumers access to every book that was available. You didn't have to stock any of them. You didn't have to hold any of them. You just had to list them in your offering. And consumers could order them. Then you would source them and send them on to the consumer. So it was also a pretty indestructible object. That is, it wasn't like trying to supply flowers, for example, which could be easily destroyed in transit. Books, pretty robust. So he saw books as a great way to begin a retail business. His ambition was always to be much more than a book retailer. It was to be as the term Amazon suggests, a, a, the everything store. You know, he was going to supply everything from, from books to garden equipment to dog food and everything. You know? And so it was, it was an ambitious plan to be a, a online retailer competing with the biggest retailers in the world. And books were just his starting point. So that was the aim. Um, and of course, he, for the first few years, he ran the business in, you know, at a loss and you know, it didn't look terribly promising in the late 1990s, but he persevered and gained momentum and he grew remarkably fast. And, and, and by a decade later, it had become a very major player in the retail book business. And it's an astonishing story because this began in 1996 from zero. And... Today, not much, you know, 20 years later, as it were, Amazon had become the biggest retail organization, indeed the most powerful organization that the book business has ever seen. So this is an extraordinary story. And, and we now, you know, by the late, as it were, after from 2015 on, um, Amazon were basically the dominant player in the retail marketplace for books. We know Borders went out of business and Barnes and Noble were struggling and continue to struggle. Uh, and you have Amazon racing into the future and gaining more and more market share. So we now have a situation where Amazon is the most, um, the dominant retail organization in book selling. And that means perhaps accounting for 
45% of all physical book sales in the US uh, and perhaps accounting for um, 75 to 80% even more ebook sales in North America. And just to give you some point of comparison, Barnes & Noble, even at its heyday, probably didn't account for more than 25% of book sales. So Amazon is much more powerful than, than Barnes & Noble ever was. And it's not just that. What's really important to see here is that it's not just that Amazon has a very large market share in the publishing industry. It's that the very nature of their power is different from any other bookseller in the past. In the, in the past, booksellers you know, essentially made their books available to um, consumers who could come in the store and browse and buy and so on and so forth and then leave. But the bookseller didn't really gather information about consumers, about the book buyers. They didn't systematically gather information about them. But part of Jeff Bezos's brilliance was that he saw from, from, right from the outset that what was absolutely crucial for Amazon's success was going to be gathering data on consumers and doing so systematically. So this is what they did. So that when you buy something from Amazon, you 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 are giving your details to Amazon. They have your credit card details. They have your they 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 are able to track your buying history and to retain that data, and they are even able to track your browsing history and to retain that data. Your browsing history on their platform, so they know a great deal about you as a consumer, and they commoditize, they turn that data into what I call information capital, which they store, analyze, and then use to promote other goods. So, and indeed, even to sell that data to other organizations who advertise within the Amazon platform. So this becomes absolutely critical for Amazon. They are able to utilize all this knowledge, all this information in order to sell more effectively to consumers. And we all know this as individual users of Amazon because we all receive regular email blasts from Amazon saying, you may be interested in buying this particular book or based on your, that you may not say this, but it's based on your browsing history, based on your purchasing history. They're constantly promoting new things to you, books and other objects, other goods. And so they use this information capital in order to strengthen their position still further. And this was something that no other retailer ever did in this way. They never were able to gather this information systematically. This is something that is opened up by the digital revolution and created a whole new form of retailing that Amazon has taken as run with and developed in a very systematic way. It makes the company also ambivalent. I mean, what you're telling us in relation to how it's affected publishing is, of course, I'm sure for very many of us, informative. But the fact that 
Amazon and so many other companies out there are collecting all this data on us is something that we are all aware of. It just doesn't seem, though, necessarily to, in any sort of mass way, change people's behavior. I mean, you make, for instance, one of the good points about, well, what was so special about the Kindle? Why did it succeed where so many other ebook readers failed? And one of the reasons was precisely that uh, customers already had their data with Amazon, uh, amongst many other reasons, of course. But that was one of the motivating factors to think, well, okay, I mean, I've ordered 40 books with them. I know they're trustworthy. They already have my you know, credit card details and so on. So, so this is a good thing. And I mean, when we read from Jeff Bezos something like, we want to be Earth's most customer-centric company, then we think, does he mean that in a good way or a bad way? And to just add a one more complication to this, this company, it has changed the position of the retailer across from the publishers themselves in a way that, please correct me if I'm wrong, has never really been the case in the history of publishing. Yes, that's, that's all true. And it is a very ambivalent phenomenon, as, as you rightly say, because let's not lose sight of the enormous gains that Amazon has, has given us in the sense that books are now easier to find and to purchase than ever before. It's almost difficult now for those who've grown up in the world of Amazon to remember or think, imagine what the world was like before Amazon, uh, when it was actually much harder to find books, much harder to order books, much harder even to know which books existed. Now it is so easy if you can do, you simply do a, a search on Amazon or a search on Google and you will find these books very quickly and you can order anything. Um, you can find and order almost anything. And so we shouldn't lose sight of the great advantages here. You know, it really is, it does make book buying so easy. And that's also helps to explain why for readers using Amazon is, is a very tempting and attractive proposition. It's very attractive because it's so easy to order books via Amazon. And moreover, you know, they, they do a great job in terms of service. They give you very good prices. They often discount and so on and so forth. So it's hard not to like it. Um, they do a great job. The, the downside of this, well, there are several downsides, but one downside of it is that it basically makes it very difficult for competitors to stay in the business. And so it places enormous pressure on other retailers. Uh, it squeezes other retailers very hard. Um, and it means that you create a retail environment that becomes increasingly less diverse. And there are dangers in that. There are dangers in this um, elimination of diversity in the retail marketplace. One danger is that, of course, it gives one retailer a great deal of power in their negotiations with their suppliers. Um, so if, if you are a publisher, i.e. a supplier, and you and, and 50, 40 or 50% of your business is going through one retail outlet, i.e. Amazon, then you don't have a great deal of leverage in your negotiations over terms of trade. That is, Amazon can ask 
for better terms, higher discounts, and so on and so forth. And it's very difficult to say no to this because if you can't do a deal with Amazon, then you're going to lose a very substantial part of your sales, maybe up to half. So it creates a very asymmetrical negotiating position for the suppliers. Um, but also there are other more subtle issues here from the point of view of the ecology of the book. If you think about it, there is a big difference between the way that readers discover books in the world of Amazon on the one hand, and the way that they discover books in the world of the bricks and mortar bookstore on the other. When you walk into a bricks and mortar bookstore, like a local bookstore in your neighborhood or a Waterstones or Barnes and Noble bookstore, you are browsing. There is a particular kind of experience here that we could call the browsing experience. So you are wandering around looking at books that are being displayed on tables and on shelves. You may have gone into the bookstore with, a, with the desire to find a particular book that you knew about and wanted to buy, but maybe you are just browsing. And even if you did go with the aim of finding a particular book, you almost certainly will browse on the front tables and look around to see what else is available and so on and so forth. And you may well find yourself buying several books or seeing books that you hadn't planned on buying when you went into the store. A very significant percentage of purchasing in the uh, physical bricks and mortar bookstore are books that you did not intend to buy, but are spontaneous purchases. However, in the online space of Amazon, you don't really browse in the same way. You, you go to Amazon with the intention of buying a particular book that you are interested in purchasing, whatever it might be. You know what it is you're looking for. You do a search, you find it, you buy it. And then you get recommended things by Amazon based on their recommendation algorithm. And the recommendation algorithm is basically telling you which, it's telling you how to browse. It's telling you which are the books we think you will be interested in seeing rather than the disorganized browsing experience of a bookstore. So in other words, it's targeted browsing, but the targeting is not done by you. It's done by someone else who is putting certain books in front of you. It's not actually done by a person. It's done by an algorithm, which is putting certain books in front of you. And therefore it's a very different kind of browsing experience. And it may mean that you're exposed to more of the same rather than more diversity. So the, the algorithm will know, for example, that you like, let's say, romance fiction. And therefore, it will show you more romance fiction similar to the romance fiction that you've already bought. But it won't show you, for example, um, it won't show you, uh, say, um, a book on the history of ancient Greece, because there's no evidence that you are going to be interested in the history of ancient Greece because you haven't bought a book on that before. So your browsing will be narrowed down by the way that you have purchased previously. And this is a very different kind of exposure to culture and to books. And therefore, it's a hidden cost of this loss of diversity in the retail marketplace.
it would seem that Amazon, uh, and as as you said, uh, Jeff Bezos really got things right and, 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 and looked very far into the future. It seemed that Amazon understood, perhaps without naming it in the way that you do, um, the individualization of modern culture. This idea that, you know, we all want more of what it is that we already want, <laughs> to put it in a pretty, perhaps simple and silly way. And the the downside of this is, of course, just what you're talking about, because it might seem that Amazon, I mean, why couldn't Amazon offer a bit of a random browsing experience just as, you know, a books and mortar would? I mean, they've done so much else because it seems like people are also walking out of bricks and mortar stores with books and enough, apparently, yeah, to make it a worthwhile venture. I mean, I'm not quite sure which type of browsing is more lucrative. I would I would I, I suppose a business person is going to tell me, well, you're crazy. Obviously the targeted sort of browsing is going to be far more lucrative. But um it, it, it would seem that there's no going back on this individualization then for a company like Amazon. I mean to test out a different approach would it probably doesn't even enter into their minds, does it? I think it probably does. Um, and so one thing that's very interesting to look at here is why is it that Amazon, having developed this very powerful and effective retail uh, system online, has decided that it's worth opening physical bricks and mortar bookstores as they have done. So that's a very intriguing question. Why would they why would they do that? Because we all know the liabilities of the bricks and mortar bookstore. You have to pay for real estate, often very expensive in the city center of big cities, and it's very hard to sell enough books to cover the price of that of that real estate, the, the rent for that real estate, and so on and so forth. Um, but I think you can only make sense of why Amazon are are creating bricks and mortar bookstores in major cities in the U.S. if you see it as a way of experimenting with the very processes of browsing, as you just said. That is, they are they want to see what happens when customers are browsing books in different kinds of ways, and so what you have in these physical bookstores of Amazon um, are different ways of thinking about the browsing experience. Um, there are many things that are very striking about a Amazon bookstore. One is that it's very small, it's very, very small compared to, um, say, a Barnes & Noble bookstore, which is a huge cathedral of books, many floors, tons of books, all spine out, and so on and so forth. Thousands, tens of thousands of books. Whereas a, an Amazon bookstore is very small and all the books are displayed face out, not spine out. So there are actually a very small number of books in that bookstore. But they are chosen to be there on the basis of knowledge about what consumers in that particular locale are interested in buying and have bought. So they know what consumers in a particular um postal code area or set of postal codes areas of a particular city, whether it's Seattle or New York or whatever, what they have bought before, and they know which books are relevant to that particular region and that particular area. And they use this 
data that they have, again, their information capital, to decide which are the small number of books that they are going to display face out to people walking into those stores. So they are mixing the different methods of, of discovery here, using data to help select titles, but using the physical store to allow consumers to wander about and see things that are not determined strictly by their own personal purchasing histories. So it would seem, though, that the best way to get a really random sort of browsing at an Amazon store would be to travel across the country to a different one, <laughs> well outside of your postal code. <laughs> that's, that's, that may be right. <laughs> um, in, in, in this context, and there's, there's just so many um, topics that, um, just, just for the sake of listeners, I, I want to make clear uh, that we're uh, skipping over in the book uh, about self publishing, for instance. Um, we've talked some about the visibility of, of, of product, crowdfunding. Um, one particular favorite of mine was the chapter on audiobooks and uh, the entire background and new area of work, which is audio narration. Um, but uh, I do want to follow right up on, on the whole position of Amazon and sort of giants for in this industry. I mean, we know about the, the big five publishing um, companies. I've heard just this week that there might even be a, a big four in the near future. Um, so things might even shrink further. And one, one quote that really stuck out for me in the book was from uh, Morgan Entrekin at, at Literary Hub. And that's a, a daily literary website, which... Um, it's called by him a crowdsource by invitation, essentially asking content creators to uh, commit to providing so much content for their own publishing on that particular uh, platform. And what he says, and he's been successful, what he says is uh, this, um, I'm quoting, I believe that if you do something that's good enough, people will come. That's the theory by which I've run my business for however many years. And the great thing about this business, particularly in our corner of it, is that quality wins. It may not win right away, but it will win in the end. And that struck me because I noticed that, as, as you stated in your introduction, there's a lot of not winning people in this area. There's a lot of failures, uh, a lot of things that have crashed. I mean, we spent some time initially uh, talking about uh, TouchPress, for instance, which was doing just phenomenal things and, and, and wasn't able to make it. And I wonder how true uh, Morgan Entrican's statement still is in the area of uh, creative content creation. I, I have an enormous amount of respect for Morgan Entrican. I think he's, he's one of the true innovators and, great, and he's, a, he's a great publisher. He's a great publisher. I think he, the statement you quoted works really well for the kind of publishing he does. Uh, you know, he's a literary publisher and he's a very good literary publisher and he, you know, he publishes high quality literary work and he makes good decisions. He's a, he's an excellent publisher. So he's, as he said, he's always proceeded on the assumption that quality will work in the end, not necessarily immediately, but in the end. And I think in the area of, of publishing where he is working, which is high quality, mainly fiction, but also some high quality nonfiction, that's 
probably a good operative principle. Uh, and, you know, I, he's, he's run his business successfully for many years and, you know, he makes good decisions. So it has worked. I mean, it's not just quality. He has to make good business decisions too. That is, in the countless ways that any publisher of that kind has to make business decisions, not paying too much money for something, printing in the right quantities, et cetera, et cetera. So there are many, 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 you know, financial decisions that he makes every day that enables that kind of model to work. So one shouldn't um, forget that. On the other hand, he's not doing technological innovation in the same way as Touch Press was. Touch Press was trying to develop, you know, they, they were absolutely focused on quality. They were the Rolls Royce of the app, of the book as app world. Um, they were producing the best and highest quality book apps that existed. Um, and it was so quality was absolutely their priority. But it didn't work, and it didn't work in the end. And so the Morgan's um, slogan doesn't apply to them. And it doesn't apply to them because they were in a different kind of market. Um, they were trying, they weren't selling, you know, they weren't selling literary fiction in print on paper form. They were trying to sell apps to consumers in a very crowded app marketplace where prices were collapsing. And so it, it just wasn't going to pan out for them in the end. And so I think that's true of many people who are doing working in, in, in new technological areas where they're trying to develop new um, kinds of product and new services based on technological developments, they aren't necessarily going to succeed just by focusing on quality. That may not be enough. All right. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the, you come to in the uh, conclusion in the, in the last chapter, you, you, you talk about the old media and the new tech companies and uh, lots of very fascinating points come up in there. Um, the different logics, the economic logics, as you call it, of, of the two industries. But I would like to hone in on one particular uh, question that arises there is that we're at a point in the history of publishing where the reader probably has taken a position on stage which he or she has really never had being in some cases capable of really almost, let's say, influencing content, but certainly being one of the major concerns when people are creating content in a way that a publisher had in the past never even probably imagined possible and certainly wasn't considering. Publishers tended, as you as you um, give us the history, to go to intermediaries, right? They were always uh, either going to wholesalers or to the retailers themselves. And the reader was at the end of a chain that they never really got to. If they went to anyone, they were looking at their authors, perhaps, or other clients. And it would seem that the digital revolution is offering the reader something that the reader's never been able to have. So many sense is a good thing. And you put the pointed question for sure. Well, then why are there still publishers or what are publishers still doing then? Or what are we to expect from publishers? I've had on my uh, program here, uh, William Germano, who's written about uh, scholarly publishing. He asked the same question and he comes to the conclusion that it's just because they're so good at what they do. You can go and to all of the different types of self-publishing or uh, you give also different charts offering all the different venues that a an author has of getting help in getting his or her book out there. 
But um, if you want it done, let's say professionally, <laughs> then you go to the publisher. That was at least uh, his his answer on that question. I'd be interested to hear though what it is that that you have to say. Okay, I think there are the two different issues you've raised there. So perhaps I could deal with each of them uh, quickly, and you can tell me if you would like me to elaborate any of them further. So you first asked a question about readers and the role of readers. Um, I'm going to put that one to one side a minute and come back to that in a, in a minute. And then you asked a question about um, publishers and whether publishers are worth going to. Why can't you just do it yourself? So this is more about the kind of role of publishers in terms of the services they provide to authors. Um, so let's deal with that one first. So you, as you mentioned a minute ago, I mean, another thing that is hugely significant in terms of the digital revolution in publishing is the explosion of self-publishing. Um, and I won't say much about that now, but it because it's a huge topic in its own right, and I devote a, a very large amount of time in terms of research and a large chapter to the explosion of self-publishing. And what's so important about self-publishing, in my view, is that it it changes the power structures of the publishing world. Uh, historically, basically, what happened in the world of publishing is that publishers and agents basically assumed the power to act as gatekeepers to decide who could be published and under what conditions they would be published. So for an author, it meant you had to go through the gatekeepers in order to get your work published. You had to get either an agent and then if you got an agent, they had to get a publisher who was willing to commit to publishing your work. And if you got through those two hoops, you could be published. But a very large percentage of authors and works never got through those two hoops and therefore were never published. But the self-publishing revolution changes all that because it means that authors don't have to go through the gatekeepers anymore. They can publish on their own using these platforms that are now available. And this creates a whole new universe of its own, what I call the parallel universe that grows up alongside the world of traditional publishing and takes on its own structures, its own complex ecosystems, and so on and so forth. It's quite, it's very complex in its own way. And to understand it, you have to see there are many different players operating in many different ways within this field, and so on and so forth. So does it mean that to go down the self-publishing route is to take the second best, as it were? It's only because you fail to get accepted by the gatekeepers that you will go down the self-publishing route? Well, yes and no. I mean, that's true for some authors. Some authors try to get published through the traditional publishers, fail, and therefore decide to self-publish. But for others, that isn't the case. What happens is you get a new culture emerging here, the world of the indie, the indie author is the best way to put it, who proudly becomes a self-published author, who doesn't aspire to be published by the traditional publishers because they regard the traditional publishers as something like crooks that you know take a very large percentage of the, of the revenue and they prefer to do it themselves. And so it's not just those authors who have failed to be published by the traditional publishers that end up self-publishing. This new world of indie publishing is, isn't really like that. It's, it's a much more complicated and diverse space. And there are many authors in this world of indie, self, of indie, indie authors and indie publishing who do it 
self-consciously actively take the decision to publish this way and do it very well and very successfully. And some of them are very successful, albeit a small percentage are very successful, but some are. And so this is a more complicated question than it might at first seem. And, uh, you know, I certainly do think, you know, many publishers do a great job. Many traditional publishers do a great job. And I would agree with um, Bill Germano on that. I mean, they do a very good job. So there's no, you know, I think we can certainly accept that. And at the same time, accept that publishing as an indie author isn't just taking a second best solution. So we could say more about that, but I will leave that one on one side. And I'll come to your second question now, which is about about the reader. I think this is a really, really important topic because it 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 um, it touches on a on another point that I spent a lot of time developing in the book, which is that the digital revolution in publishing is not just about publishing. It's about the fact that thanks to the digital revolution, our whole information and communication system in contemporary societies is changing. We don't communicate with people in the way that we used to 30 or 40 years ago. The existence of podcasts is just one of countless examples to illustrate this point. There are many other ways in which we communicate with one another now through social media, through podcasts, through many other forms of communication. So the whole information communication ecosystem is being transformed. And what happens with an old industry like publishing is that these players in the industry, traditional publishers and the many other players that exist in the world of, of book publishing, have to adapt to this changing ecosystem of communication and information flow. And they have to they have to realize that their existing structures that grew up over 500 years were dependent on a different information and communication system. And so in that traditional ecosystem of communication and information flow, publishers were in a communication chain where they made, they basically acquired content from authors, turned it into books, and sold those books to intermediaries in the book supply chain. And those intermediaries were basically booksellers and wholesalers. And the only customers that they ever dealt with were booksellers and wholesalers. And that's true of most traditional publishing houses today. That's all they do. They deal with booksellers and wholesalers. So if you talk with a publisher like Random Penguin Random House, and you know their customers are basically Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the independent bookstores and other bookstelling chains. So their customers are intermediaries. But what happens with the digital revolution is that one of those intermediaries in the book supply chain, namely Amazon, has discovered that they are able to gather data and information on the next step in the book supply chain, namely the readers, and amass very large quantities of information about readers and use that to their advantage. And now booksellers are cut off from those re ultimate readers because they are dealing only with the retailers. 
And so it's this changing ecosystem which is causing and leading publishers to realize that they have to rethink their supply, their, their, their orientation, their self-understanding as organizations. They have to see that they too must be thinking about readers in a way that they never were previously. And they must do this because the players that they had traditionally relied on to make their books available to the ultimate consumers, i.e. the readers, namely the bookstores, are diminishing and dwindling. And moreover, other mechanisms that they used to make their books visible to the ultimate consumers, i.e. the readers, like book review media in newspapers and so on and so forth, um, uh, book programs on television and so on and so forth, that they're all diminishing, they're all declining. So they're no longer able to make their books visible so easily to the consumers. So they need to rethink their way of relating to readers. They need to take readers seriously in a way that they never did before. They need to stop thinking of themselves only as, well, in the, in the terminology of business studies, B2B businesses, that is a business selling to another business, and realize that they have to think of themselves more as B2C businesses, that is businesses selling to consumers, or not selling to consumers, but communicating with consumers. So how do they do that? Well, there are lots of different ways to do it, but one of the ways that many of the traditional publishing houses are seeking to do it is to gather their own information about who their readers are and what their readers are interested in. And many publishers are doing this actively by building their own databases of readers, reaching out to readers, communicating directly with them, and so on and so forth. They have to do it themselves because Amazon will not share their data with publishers or any other suppliers. Their data is their proprietary data, so they won't share it. So publishers themselves have to find their own ways to gather this information about their consumers, and they have to become not just author-centric or bookseller-centric, but also reader-centric organizations and think and take their readers more seriously than they have done previously. It is one of the points in the book that certainly was eye-opening for me, the fact that there has historically been that, I mean, a disconnect is clearly an exaggeration, but there wasn't a connection directly between readers and publishers. And you would think, you know, publisher, publishing, making public, I, I suppose I naively thought that they, they, they were working or collaborating more closely. But I, I suppose just to follow up briefly, if you like, on uh, that question of, well, why still publishers? What what I'm hearing is that the the publisher has then a sort of obligation to the content creation and perhaps even to the content itself. So there seems to be, I guess, then in publishing, they have a, a certain duty to that side of things. And for them to become, let's say, like Amazon or only Amazon-like if uh, would would really be to go back on what it is that they're meant to be doing. Yes, that's true. I mean, I think, I think you know, publishers have a an obligation to authors because they are basically 
providing a service to authors. They are also, you know, this is part of what they do. They provide a service to authors, but also they are very good at developing content, content creation and development through editorial processes, but also crucially, you know, marketing and making books visible and 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 um, um, uh, disseminating knowledge and information about books, marketing them effectively so that they have a degree of take up in the social world that they would not have if you simply if you self-published but didn't have any marketing clout behind it. So I think you know there are different functions that a publisher in this changing environment still has that are valuable. And even if you if you look at the world of self-publishing where authors choose to publish without using a gatekeeper like a publisher, very often they are availing themselves of other players in this new ecosystem of self-publishing to provide many of the services that publishers provide in the traditional world of publishing. So, for example, they might hire an editor to do the editorial work. They might hire a marketer and a publicist to do the marketing and publicity work. And, and they might hire a designer to design the book and the cover and so on and so forth. And there are whole, there's a whole, a whole hidden economy of services in the world of self-publishing that provide those very activities and services that traditional publishers themselves provide. What happens is that these activities don't go away. They just become unbundled in the world of self-publishing. And, and the, the, the indie author has to find the various players to provide those unbundled services on a one-by-one basis or can go to an intermediary to provide them all together. So the, the activities played and the roles played by traditional publishers don't disappear in the world of self-publishing. They just get done in a different way. So coming back to the world of traditional publishers, yes, they have an obligation to authors they, they are good and professional at developing content. And if they're good publishers, they're also, they have a well thought through and sophisticated marketing and publicity operation that helps to create visibility for books. But on this last point of creating visibility, making books known to others, the opportunity created by the digital revolution is not just that you make books visible by using traditional media like advertising in a newspaper or whatever it might be, but that you are able to reach out directly to readers and consumers and make your books visible to them directly in much the way that Amazon does when they send an email blast to an Amazon user that says you might be interested in this book. But why can't publishers do that themselves? Now, the thanks to the digital revolution, the opportunity is now created for publishers to develop relationships with readers and to do so at scale. It simply wasn't possible prior to the digital revolution and prior to the internet, but now it is. And so that is a huge transformation that publishers are beginning to avail themselves of and which will, I think, continue to um, change the industry and to um, to lead to further developments over the coming years and decades. 
Well, fascinating answer and fascinating material. John, you've been uh, very generous with your time. Um, I do have one last question, and it, and it really closes the circle, and and it follows up on you know how fascinating this material is, and yet, unfortunately, in, in, in your field of um, sociology and social sciences, why it's been neglected. Uh, your work, uh, as you've made clear, is certainly breaking new ground. There's just a dearth of studies in uh, publishing from a sociological perspective. And I wonder if you could just maybe close off with, um, well, then where should things go from here? Where are you going from here? Well, I think there, there, you know, there are many different ways. I think there are many different ways to think through that question. First of all, let me say that this is work in progress. You know, um, it's work in progress simply because this is a revolution that is still well underway. It's very, very hard to write the history of the present, the history of what's happening now and over the last few years, because it is constantly changing. So um, some of the things that I spoke about in the book have already changed. Um, The field is moving very fast and it will continue to move. So I think this is this is, as I say, work in progress. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of this would need to be changed and developed even further, um, you know, over the over the coming years. Um, but having said that, you know, there are many areas covered in this book where, as with my previous book, Merchants of Culture, I felt I was just scratching at the surface, even though. I spent a lot of time working on some of these topics. Let me just take one example, uh, which I've already mentioned, but let me focus on it for a minute, which is the world of self-publishing. So, yes, I spent a lot of time studying this world um, because no one has studied it before. You know, it's astonishing when you think about it, given that literally millions of books are being published now via self-publishing. It just the, the volume of output dwarfs the output of the traditional publishing world. Um, so many books are appearing through many different platforms that have been created in the world of self-publishing. This is, as I said, a parallel universe. Um, and the contours of this universe are not easy to make out because there are many different players. They're always changing and there are many new opportunities that are being created. So it would, it would certainly merit more intensive work than I have been able to do in Book Wars. It was an important part of Book Wars, but it could become easily a project on its own. And similarly, audiobooks, which we haven't even spoken about. Um, as I worked on this project, uh, in the course of doing the research, it became very clear to me that audiobooks were becoming more and more important. And of course, audiobooks are entirely, the the way that audiobooks exist today, are entirely a result of the digital revolution. It's only because it's possible to, to access this content, audio content, digitally, that the audiobook business has really taken off. It existed previously, but it was always quite a small part of the publishing world. But as it became possible to download audiobooks and to to listen to audiobooks via streaming services. Uh, that it that they really began to take off as a sector 
all to itself. And again, it's almost like a parallel universe. It's a very complicated space and it's all right. I spent a lot of time trying to map the contours of the space of audiobooks, which has, again, never really been seriously studied as a contemporary industry, and, and try to understand how this space works. And this is growing very fast now. Uh, it's expanding. It's taking on new dimensions. It overlaps in an interesting way with the world of podcasts. So again, this could easily become a separate spin-off project in its own right. And then finally, something that is hugely interesting in my view, but again, largely neglected in terms of research, is the whole world of the writer. Writers, uh, I mean, of course, are the ultimate creators of book content, but writers are now ex living in a different kind of world where new opportunities are being opened up all the time through digital transformations, such as those I've been discussing. And the world of the writer is changing. And yet we know very little about how the worlds of the writer are changing. So again, this in itself is a wonderful project that could easily be spun off into a new and larger research activity. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that is John Thompson. And Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing is out this year with Polity Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to John. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you very much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>